So, if you are a guest this morning, you have picked an excellent time to visit and to jump in with Four Oaks because we are four weeks into a series on a book in the Old Testament, which is the book is titled Daniel. And the title of the series that we're in is called Hope in Exile. Hope in Exile. And so this book, Daniel, just to give you kind of an overview, it begins with a, a great Babylonian king. His name is long and complicated. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, and he, he imprisons the Jewish people and carries them off all the way to Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had an unusual system of indoctrinating people that had come from other country, where, countries where he, he took the best and the brightest from the country that they had taken over, and he pulled them together, and he would, he would school them and train them. And this he did with four particular men, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, and Daniel, the guy who the book is, is named after. So this book is about Daniel, his friends, and all of Israel, and how they discover what it means to live righteously when they are in exile, when they are living in a land that is not their own. And of course, as Christians, we believe that heaven is where our citizenship lies, and we are in exile as well. But also, the people of Israel, and Daniel in particular, are living in a culture that is totally opposed to what they represent and that is growing darker with regards to what they embody. And so there are a lot of parallels that we can draw for the day in which we live as well. So this morning we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 4. You can open up your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, no sweat. We're going to show it on the screens above, Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. title of this morning's message is, Of Presidents, Power, and People. Of Presidents, Power, and and people. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom the spirit of the holy gods dwells, and I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretations. Okay, we're going to stop right there. We're going to jump into other parts of the chapter in a little while, but let's just stop there and let's freeze and let's pray and let's ask for God's help upon our time together this morning. Lord, this is a long chapter. This is a complicated chapter. There's a lot of, for us to wrap our brain around. And we, right now, we, we feel our need for you. 
Lord, no man, no woman can comprehend the realities of your word and can certainly seek to apply them unless you are with us, unless you are visiting us and helping us. So be with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I asked you to tell me your story, what would you say? Where would you start? Maybe begin in the town that you were raised in or some defining moment in your family history. Perhaps some tragic thing that happened to you. Or maybe you just fast forward to present day and talk to me about what you do for a living. You know, I was speaking in Virginia last week, and someone came up to me and said, you're from Pittsburgh, right? And they were from Pittsburgh, and they could tell just by the way that I talked that we kind of shared together the common heritage of steel mills and the Pittsburgh Pirates and the incline that goes up Mount Washington or Fort Washington or Mount Washington, whatever it is. It's been a while since I've been there. But in reality, my story is much larger than Pittsburgh. You know, when we think about our life, we, we tend to only see like, like slices of the past. It's like looking through a telescope where you, where you kind of target in on, on one planet or one constellation. It's not really the entire universe, all of space. It's just one little sliver. And that's the challenge when we think about our story. You know, we fix on planets, but we can really miss the larger space. We fix on planets, but we can miss the plot. We don't see the whole story. In less than a month, we're going to elect a new president. And we're going to play a part in that story by voting. At least we should. But let's be honest. I mean, we can't see the larger plot here. Even the most discerning and experienced political operative just don't know where this whole thing is going. Just don't know what kind of story is really being written. You know, there's, there, there's an epic moment in The Lord of the Rings where Sam kind of turns to Frodo and he says, I wonder what sort of tale we have fallen into, Mr. Frodo. You know, Sam understood something. Sam knew that his adventure was part of a bigger tale. He just didn't know the plot. He knew that his adventure was part of something larger. He just couldn't see the larger storyline. You know, it's an ironic moment when hobbits see what humans miss. That life is bigger than right now. That space is bigger than one planet. That our story is larger than us. In Daniel chapter 4, we return to Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, is the most powerful man in the world. And here we are invited into his story. And we are told earlier that he has had a dream. It is a dream of a great tree. It rises to the heavens. And out of heaven comes this watcher, and this watcher from heaven chops down the tree so that there's only a stump. But somehow in this dream, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, the stump becomes a man, and the man goes crazy. 
But what we're finding as we're marching through Daniel is that with each section of the first three chapters that we've already looked at, with each section we are shown a larger plan. We are invited together to kind of trace the hand of God in Daniel and to come to terms with an unsinkable idea that repeatedly just kind of bobs to the surface. And that idea is that God writes our story to reveal himself. God writes our story to reveal himself. And so that theme is continuing now in Daniel chapter 4, and we discover once again that that Nebuchadnezzar has had another dream. And let's just pick it up in Daniel chapter 4, verse 19. He talks about the dream prior to that, but Daniel's about to interpret the dream in this passage, so we can just read Daniel's interpretation and get a sense for the dream. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. This is Daniel interpreting the dream, by the way. By the way, the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heavens and it was visible to the end of the whole world, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, he said. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew of the heaven, and let his portion be with beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is... The interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will." And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the trees, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know the heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Oh, you know, if if speaking truth to power were an Olympic event, I believe Daniel would grab the gold in this moment. Because basically he's standing in front of the most powerful man in the world and he's interpreting his dreams, his dream. And here's his interpretation. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar, this is about you. Number two, you're proud as all get out. Number three, that's a problem. Number four, God is going to humble you through a little insanity. And number five, your story will tell the world something important about power and presidents and people. 
In other words, through this dream, God is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, I wrote your, so- your story to say something about me. That's what God is saying. So we, we continue to proceed through Daniel 4, and through Daniel 4, coming up to verse 28, where Nebuchadnezzar's dream comes to pass, and then his repentance follows. Let's just plug in at verse 28. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, check this out, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. Wow. There is a powerful story being told here. But the story of Nebuchadnezzar really reveals a larger story, a backstory. And so what I want to do together is I want to look at what is the larger story that God wants to tell here. And what does it mean for those of us that are in exile? What does it mean for those of us that are approaching an election in less than a month? What is the larger story here? Two points. First, the larger story says that pride is perilous. Pride is perilous. That's, that's point number one. Let's just talk about that for a second. Let's stop right there. So Nebuchadnezzar's life is, is really the story of a leader growing large. And this is a man, remember from the first three chapters, this is a man that was infamous for his, infamous for his, his vanity, for his irrationality, for his shocking cruelty. I mean, if arrogance was a drug, Nebuchadnezzar was an addict. He was intoxicated. He was a brutal king and emperor. And a very proud man. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at two specific marks of his pride. We're talking about the perils of pride as part of the broader storyline. I'm going to give you two marks of his pride that we see coming immediately out of the text. Here's the first one. Forgotten rescues. And the second one is fallen glory. Forgotten rescues. Fallen glory. Let's look at forgotten rescues. So Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we discover again, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. Daniel interprets the dream. The dream is a warning about pride. The dream is a warning about pride, but it's a warning about how much God loves him and how God wants to help him and that God wants to warn him and rescue him. Nebuchadnezzar hears the dream and Nebuchadnezzar thinks, that's awesome. 
God is awesome. And then fast forward 12 months, and Nebuchadnezzar is standing on his roof, and he's saying, you know what? Check out Babylon. Check out what I have built for my glory. He went from God is awesome to I am awesome. And actually, that's been, as you recall, a pattern in Nebuchadnezzar's life ever since the beginning of chapter 1. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel steps forward to satisfy Nebuchadnezzar's absurd conditions during the first dream interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar wants his dream interpreted, but he's not going to tell anybody what the dream is. And so Daniel steps forward, tells him the dream and the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is overwhelmed. He's filled with wonder. He drops to his knees, but only for a moment. Only for a moment. Because soon... He forgets, and he turns around, and he erects a golden image of himself, 90 feet high, and he begins to insist that people worship him. So he goes from a leader who worships God to insisting his people worship him. He swings from bowing before God to becoming a God in his own mind, somebody who's worthy of worship. You see... The bigger we grow in our own mind, the less we remember God's rescues. The less we remember God and how he has acted and served and loved and cared for us in the past. And there is this sense where the bigger we grow in our own mind, the more our history gets revised, the more God gets edited out the more we forget, the memory grows dull, God grows small, we grow big. And we're like that. We have these forgotten rescues. We live as the ultimate existentialists in the moment, just remembering what God's done over the last three or four seconds of our... We, we have Dory brains. You know, remember Dory from Finding Nemo? Dory was one of the characters. She was a, I don't know what kind of fish she was, but she apparently only had had the memory span of three seconds. So she was just always in the moment, always forgetting what just happened, what was just said, I don't know. They were like that with God. What has God done for me right now? No, now. Oh, no, no, I mean now. And we forget his rescues. And for Nebuchadnezzar, and this is what's so sobering, that was a profound illustration of pride. We forget the earlier chapters of our life. Nebuchadnezzar forgets chapter 1, 2, and 3. He's living in chapter 4. He forgets all of God's deliverances in the prior chapters. Because we become big and our memory becomes vague. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you sat with your family and you just exalted over God's rescues in your life or in your family? Or you gathered together your friends, and rather than doing what you typically do, maybe you just spent a little bit of time saying, you know what, let's just, let's just share for a second. Let's get all spiritual and weird. But let's just talk a moment. Where, when was the time that God rescued you? I mean, that's what our conversion is. That's what our conversion is. Ultimately, it's God's rescue. It's, that's the climax of all of our stories is the amazing rescue 
by Jesus Christ. We who were spiritually wretched. We who were lost and miserable and broken beings. And what's more, we clung prideful to our place and we were utterly committed to our own destruction and totally powerless to alter our circumstances whatsoever. And God broke in. The watcher came from heaven and broke into our lives and overruled our commitment to our own destruction by rewriting our character and rewriting the ending of our story. And and part of what we share together with Nebuchadnezzar is this, this stubborn pride that is ultimately overcome by the love of God, is ultimately overcome by a love that is so persistent, it will it will go after enemies and win them to him. But we forget. I forget too often. And that's one of the marks of pride, forgotten rescues. But there's a second one for Nebuchadnezzar as well, and that's fallen glory. Forgotten rescues is kind of where we forget God's rescues when we tell our story. You know, we forget God's rescues when we tell our story. Well, fallen glory is where we tell our story, but we're the only hero. We're the only hero. I think verse 30 offers the best window into what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's heart where he is standing on his roof, he is surveying all of his accomplishments, and his mind goes to this place. After all of those rescues in the first three chapters, this is where Nebuchadnezzar's mind goes. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my Majesty. See, the peril of pride, as it's expressed through fallen glory, is how it moves self-glory to the center of our story. It moves it to the center. And by the way, that didn't begin with us. That goes all the way back to like even before creation when Lucifer was an angel and he became Satan because he said, I must ascend. I'm going to displace God. I'm going to put myself in the place of God. I'm going to glorify myself. And then he made his way in the Garden of Eden in the form of a snake and was speaking to the woman and saying, you know what, you need to do it on your own. You need to look to yourself. He's not going to have your best interest in mind. Obedience is optional. Look to yourselves. But it doesn't stop there as well either. I mean, it's seen all over the place in politics as candidates move from just legitimately highlighting their record to crafting this glorious persona that basically makes them appear as if they're sinless. They just dropped right out of heaven. They're the watchers. I heard a report recently about uh, that the North Korean dictator, Kim Jong, is widely believed to never use a toilet. I mean, that's, that's one of the beliefs. Among some of the people over there, many of the people over there. In other words, he, that, that would be too human. That would be too undignified, too inglorious. You know, one of the greatest dangers of pride, and, and pride mixed with power in particular, is, is how it supplies the opportunity to opt out of reality. Yeah, I don't use a toilet. How it supplies the opportunity to opt out of relationship, to opt out of transparency, to opt out of vulnerability, to opt out of reality completely. 
And it's where we're just trying to fix glory in the center, which is just a sophisticated way to replace us with God and God with us. We just push God out, we move ourselves to the center, and we say, well, that's who needs to be glorified. I've seen it in my life. I met recently with a friend, my friend, guy I've known for three decades. He's, he's walking me through certain past situations where he believes that I've, I've made some mistakes and, and trying to help me to see that. And, you know, I'm, on one hand, I'm thinking, this is so good. This is so right. This is so healthy. Because I know that God ordains those kinds of moments to help me move away from self-glory, to help attack my self-glory. But you know what? There's this other part of me where I'm just totally tempted to go Nebuchadnezzar on the guy. You know, totally tempted to demand that, that my flaws or are ignored, to demand that my image is prayed, to demand to spread the rumor that I don't go to the bathroom. You know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? And, and we live in these ways where, where we just want our glory to be at the center of our life. And then along comes a man named Daniel who's got the guts to stand up and speak to it. And part of the, one of the questions I want to raise with us this morning, I mean, let's just get honest with one another. Who is your Daniel? I know you think you're a big guy. And I'm sure in your world you are a big guy. But if you don't have a Daniel, you're a small guy. And ladies, by the way, you're not exempt because you're a lady and that's not a feminine thing. If there is... If you can't look right now to someone in your life that has the courage to stand up and ask you legitimate questions that drill all the way down to your motivations, then it may be that you're being set up by the perils of pride. Who tells you the fallen side of your story? Not the good side. That's, we do that, and I'm glad we do that. I want to do that. I want to do that in my friendships. But, oh, boy, do I need somebody who's going to stand in front of me and tell me about the fallen side of my story to hold up the mirror and help me see myself. Because when I hate that, that's just my pride, nothing more. The more I hate that, the more I come into alignment with the one that said, I will ascend. I will displace God. I will move myself to the center of glory. And here's the challenge that we're dealing with is that according to Scripture, I mean, Proverbs 8, verse 13, for instance, God says, I hate pride and arrogance. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, God says, or it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But God opposes the proud. Now notice it doesn't say God really struggles with the proud or God discourages pride or God penalizes the proud. No, God opposes. Do you know what it's like to live under God's opposition? I mean, how many people are living frustrated lives? They feel like they can't move forward because they're doing nothing more than 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 trying to protect a persona of their own perfection. And they're experiencing and living within the reality of God's opposition when he gives grace to the humble. 
I mean, God's so serious about pride, he feels so strongly about it, that with Nebuchadnezzar, he just sprinkles a little insanity upon him. He says, I'll get the message through. I'll take the greatest leader in the history of the world to date, and I'll just flip a switch. Introduce him to grass. Not to walk on, but to eat. It's fallen glory. Let me ask you a question. So, so who is the hero when you tell stories? Who, who is the hero? Who, who gets the glory? You know, how often do you celebrate other people and, and how they've served, how they've loved, or you, you seize the opportunity to make it about, you know, so often in social situations and friendships, we're, we're trying to maneuver things to get ourselves into the center. How often do you, do you flip that over? And just make it about somebody else, how they've served, how they've been a blessing to you. We're talking about the the marks of pride. We're talking about the perils of pride in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We're talking about forgotten rescues, and we're talking about fallen glory. But we're not just talking about Nebuchadnezzar. We're talking about you. We're talking about me. We're talking about our need for help and for the grace of God. So that's the first point. The first big point here is that the perils of pride, that's the big part of this story. But there's a second one as well. And secondly, it's that God is supreme. So we're talking about what is the larger story that God wants us to, that God wants to tell here through Daniel chapter 4. The first point was that pride is perilous. The second point is that God is supreme. That God is supreme. Now, here's something that's kind of fascinating. There is one phrase in this chapter that is repeated in similar ways on three different occasions in three different passages. And let's just look real quick at verse 17. Verse 17, this is in the middle of the prophecy, or this is in the middle of the interpretation. I'm sorry, the middle of the dream. This is all happening, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliness of men. I'll look at verse 25 as Daniel is interpreting the dream. And he says, it's for this reason. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Let's look at verse 32. After the dream comes to pass and Nebuchadnezzar is actually nuts. Verse 32, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. See, this passage is repeated because it's central to the chapter. This passage is repeated because it's giving us a lesson. And here's the lesson, that when it comes to power or presidents or or politics, God rules, God dispenses, God appoints, period. God rules, God dispenses, God appoints, period. That God's supremacy, I mean, you know, just let, let's just like jump in a little further to Daniel chapter 4 and look at some of the, the sweeping ways that God's supremacy is illustrated. Okay, so he point, we know he appoints Nebuchadnezzar, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, 
So he's, he's involved on this gigantic macro scale. But then we see that he drops this dream into the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. And then he sends this interpretation to Daniel and delivers Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he switches the flip or flips the switch in Nebuchadnezzar's brain. And Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. And then he shuts that off at the appointed time. I mean, this basically what God is doing is he's wrecking the pride of a global leader so that the global leader becomes a lowly worshiper. And then he restores him. See, the fundamental point of Daniel chapter 4 is not, look how far Nebuchadnezzar fell. The primary point of Daniel chapter 4 is, look how powerful God is. Look how supreme God is. And therefore, let him be worshipped. Let him be exalted. Let him be treasured and praised. Because when we see and experience the supremacy of God, the first response, the only logical response, is to worship. It's the first response to supremacy. That's why this chapter is bookended by worship. We didn't read this earlier on, but chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it's about the worship of God. That's where the story starts. And then at the very end, after he comes out of his insanity, Nebuchadnezzar says, verse 34, at the end of my days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lift my eyes to heaven. My reason returns to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. See, that's the effect when we encounter God's supremacy. The effect is to say, God is preeminent. God is is to be praised. So worship. So, you know, it's the logical thing to do when we encounter the supremacy of God. But there's a second thing that we see in Nebuchadnezzar and that we must experience in our life as well, and that is dependence upon God. Dependence upon God. See, this insanity had a point. It had a point to it. The point was that global leaders, although they're powerful, are not supreme. The presidential candidates, though they're powerful, are not supreme. Even the most powerful leaders and rulers of the world depend upon God even for their brain to work. At any moment, God can just toy with wiring, the brain's wiring, and reduce a man to a beast. Reduce a, man, re- reduce a global leader to a God worshiper. And one of the reasons why this is so important is because few things can restrain pride and cultivate humility more than discovering one's dependence upon God. See, that's where Nebuchadnezzar ends up in verse 34. At the end of the days, he lifts his eyes to heaven. His reason returns, and he remembers who he is and who Nebuchadnezzar, he, he, he's able now to locate himself in a fallen world, to locate himself in Babylon, to know how to orient correctly to God and, and in life. You know, it's like God reinstalled this, this divine GPS, God's positioning system, where, where, where he, he returns to reason. He looks up, he looks at himself, and he says, I get it. He is supreme, I am not. Because God is teaching him this lesson of dependence upon him. And, 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 and we hate this kind of dependence, we do. We, we hate using GPS. 
Because, you know, it locates us, but we, we find we're getting increasingly dependent. I mean, I'm, I'm in a city not long ago. I'm, I'm looking at the GPS. I'm supposed to be preaching at 745. I arrive in front of the location that the GPS has delivered me to. It, there, it, there, there is no building. There is no people. There is a car that has been stripped down completely. It's up on blocks. I'm looking around. There is no pulpit. There is no place to preach from. I call them and I say, listen, this is where I am. They say, that's 25 minutes from where we are. And I'm supposed to preach in 15 minutes. I hate GPS. I hate being dependent upon GPS. But see, this is the good kind of dependence. It's God. It's God. Positioning system that we orient from to know who we are and where we are that reminds us each and every day, I'm not supreme, I'm subordinate. I'm not self-sufficient, I'm needy. I'm not independent, I'm dependent upon you. And brothers and sisters, with the, with the election speeding towards us. We all need this divine GPS where we are looking to heaven, seeking to understand our place, and then needing guidance from above to find the wise way forward, to find the best course forward. And so, as I begin to close, and as I move to apply some of what we're talking about, what I want to do is I want to offer you some what I hope is pastoral guidance towards a wise path as we think about this upcoming election. In other words, what does it look like to depend upon God for this election? I'm going to, I'm going to breeze through a number of points here. So you ready? Number one, we trust God and we vote. We trust God and vote. Here's how I'm coming at this. The highest earthly authority in America is not the president, it's not the Congress, it's not the media. The highest earthly authority, or the highest authority in America is our Constitution. All of those things that I just met, mentioned exist to uphold that Constitution. So, we express our submission to God and our appropriate submission to government as per Romans 13 by exercising our constitutional responsibility absent any conscientious objection based upon biblical reasons. So I, I, don't, I don't believe the absence of a, of, a, of a preferable candidate is a good reason not to vote. And particularly when we live in Florida and we can write in candidates. So, you know, I, I get it. This election... Is, is hard. It feels like we're, we're being given the option of voting for a tsunami or a hurricane. You know, what, what do we, what, which way do we want to go? feels like we got a parent asking us, how would you like your punishment? You know, do you want a timeout? Do you want a spanking? Do you want a grounding? What do you, what do you want here? But I think we have to vote. I think we have to vote. This is my opinion. I think we have, and, and full disclosure, I've got a son in the military, four deployments in Afghanistan, that I think of each time I get frustrated with this political process. So, trust God and we vote. Number two, we resist self-righteousness. We resist self-righteousness. Dependence upon God means 
that we remember that my approval is not based upon my political position. It's not based upon my presidential choice. And that I'm not going to relate to other people with a sense of superiority because I believe I perceive things more accurately than they do. Or based upon, I'm not going to accept people based upon their political party or a difference in political party. I mean, the the wild thing about the world in which we live, in particular in the, the American political system, is that these elections are unusual moments and they're, they're unusual windows into the national psyche. You know, we, we give politicians a microphone and we invite them to just exaggerate their strengths while we dig up and publicize their worst moments. And then we plaster that all over the Internet. We publicize their worst moments. And then we get everybody talking about them. And it generates a lot of self-righteousness. I mean, if you eliminate self-righteousness, three-quarters of the radio talk programs are gone in a second. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, this is, this is complicated stuff. It's difficult to divide things. It's difficult to know where to land. I, I read a quote this past week by P.J. PJ Rourke, the columnist, his explanation on why he was voting for Hillary. Okay, so I'm now going to read a quote from P.J. Rourke, who's talking about why he is voting for Hillary. And this quote is, by the way, it's not an endorsement. It is an illustration. So don't go to any dark places here. Okay, this is what he said, though. And this just illustrates how complicated what's happening right now. He says, I am endorsing Hillary and all of her lies and all of her empty promises. She's wrong about absolutely everything, but she's wrong within the normal parameters. This is complicated. And so my point is, don't use your vote to measure other people's righteousness. Don't use your perspective to measure other people's discernment. Vote what you believe and don't condemn other people for, if they're not voting. Don't condemn other people for not voting in the same way. We resist self-righteousness. Number three, we consider character. We consider character. And by the way, again, this is not a veiled endorsement of either candidate. And... I'm not sure which one would be superior in this area of character. I'm simply observing that in Scripture, there is an inseparable link between leadership and character. It exists for the church, and it exists for the world as well. And when we talk about character, we're talking about things like wisdom, and a commitment to justice, and a commitment to courage, and a commitment to truth. So whether it is the president or whether it is a police man or woman, character is the chief determiner of action. Character is the chief determiner of action. And so we're looking, we're always looking for someone who's working within the parameters of right and wrong. They believe in a right and wrong. There's a sense where they understand in the world there is right and wrong. So regardless of which candidate you support, You should be interacting with what they believe in light of what Scripture says about leadership, which means that we, neither you nor I, should we should not be defending or minimizing sinful behavior simply for loyalty to a party. We should call it out, even if it's our own candidate. And and if you have strategic reasons for supporting whatever candidate it is, let it be communicated to other people 
as a Christian, in other words, let it be communicated to others in a way that it's clear that you value what Scripture values, you value character. Number four, we fight fear. We fight fear. You know, a sober assessment of the days in which we live live, realizes that there is a great darkness coming over the land for Christians. We are drifting again towards Babylon. But historically, when the world grows dark, the church improves. We don't want it, but we need not fear it. See, we have to remember where this whole thing started for us. We have to remember the beginning, the inception. You know, back in the New Testament, we had no political power. We only had the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we, had, we, we, we met in homes back in the New Testament. And yet, yet the, the Romans were saying about Christians, these men that have turned the world upside down have come here also. And then there's Tertullian's poignant words about Christians where he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's what makes the church grow and expand. So whatever vision of the future we're holding, it may not actually square with what God is actually doing to spread the gospel. So what I'm saying is don't don't be afraid. Sometimes deplorable rulers lead to strong Christians. Don't be afraid. Number five, and this is it. We remember Daniel 4. We remember Daniel chapter 4. The point is that God uses rulers to reveal himself. That God uses our story to reveal himself. That God will use this election to magnify himself. That God will use our struggles with power and politics and presidents to reveal himself. And that there is a sense where we will grow smaller and as we grow smaller, he will grow large. And this idea is vividly portrayed in C.S. Lewis's trilogy, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy sees King Aslan and exclaims to him, Aslan, you're growing bigger. And Aslan says, that is because you are older, little one. And Lucy says, not Because you are? And Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Brothers and sisters, maybe this election is God programming for our growth. And maybe it's God's way for Aslan to grow bigger in our life. So, as you pull the lever on November 8th, I want you to remember that God has written this story. God has written your story. God has written this election to reveal himself. Let's pray.